welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from historic Haddonfield, New Jersey is Joe Murphy. Joe is Senior Advisor, Compliance Strategist, and also one of the deans and really founders of this profession, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Joe, thanks for taking time away from your day to talk to us today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Adam. And as you know, I'm always happy to talk about our profession. I do, and I I really appreciate that through the almost probably 20 years we've known each other. Now, you've been a part of compliance, arguably from the very start. What aspect of the profession's growth have most surprised you? Well, Adam, you're right about my being around from the beginning. And in fact, when I first started working in-house, I started noticing that compliance work was different from just being a lawyer and came to the conclusion it really was a separate field. What surprised me about growth, one element is areas of the field where there are large numbers of people engaged in compliance work, such as money laundering, banking, securities law, without any without any real power. It's as if people were still back in the days of of just uh, punching a card to get the job done. My sense with too many fields where there's been this growth of numbers is people are performing a function, but they don't have the real access to power that they need to get things done. And a perhaps related point is the growth in these numbers in silos, in specific areas, where we don't talk to one another, we don't work together in one profession, that we don't recognize how much we have in common. This is true in environmental compliance, money laundering, and now today, privacy. Well, it's definitely an issue. I mean, I've always struck by the incredible numbers of people who work in compliance and finance, particularly in banking. And yet when you come to any kind of compliance conference, you just don't see them. Uh, They seem to be off in their own world, which is, I think, a shame uh, for learning from us from what they've experienced and then them from seeing what the rest of industry has done. Now, looking back, if we could start from square one again, uh, what would you change in how compliance programs are structured and managed? There are a couple of things that I would change from starting out. And I think one of the first is there should be more, there should have been more emphasis on the need for a strong independent compliance officer at the top. There should have been more recognition that the risk in this area, um, the highest risks are really at the top of the company dealing with the senior executives. I would also have more of a focus from the beginning on incentives. Um, And as you know, and many people in the profession know, I have pushed very hard on this. But I think right from the start, there should have been a focus on this instead of people focusing primarily first on codes of conduct and training, and then only later getting around to incentives. And one other point in development of this, this field, that as I look back, I realize has been a significant mistake is at the Supreme Court when they were dealing with the area of harassment and discrimination. And they made it clear that in certain cases, companies would have a defense from doing what we would consider compliance efforts. 
in the way they wrote their opinion, it came across as if you only needed to do a couple things. You need to have a policy, you need to do some training, you need to have a reporting system, when in fact, they should have incorporated the entire set of standards in the sentencing guidelines. Harassment discrimination is a compliance issue just like the others. It needs the same tools. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's to me um, in, interesting seeing, you know, how things might have been if they were looked at in a different way from the start and the whole incentive area. I mean, I can't tell you how galling it is to me when I hear people say things like, well, we shouldn't send people for doing what they're supposed to be doing in the first place. And all I could think of is, well, you incent your salespeople for selling and that's what they're supposed to be doing. Why is that anywhere different? Now, one aspect of the growth of compliance is that we're starting to see areas of conflict, privacy conflict. I mean, privacy compliance may interfere with other elements of compliance and make it harder to investigate properly. How can we help untangle this knot? Well, I'll add to this, Adam, that while we're seeing it now, particularly in the privacy area, it has been an old problem. It goes back to the very beginnings of our field. And in fact, there was a time when the National Labor Relations Board held that it was an unfair labor practice to impose a code of conduct on bargaining units. And you had activities in Europe uh, well before GDPR, where, for example, the French Privacy Authority initially denounced having a reporting system, a speak-up system, so that victimized employees could report misconduct. The French Privacy Authorities felt that that was a terrible thing. And so now we're looking at it with the privacy laws and where particularly where those laws are applied to employees, not just consumers, but employees, it opens up the possibility for those employees to do things like um, file access requests and demand to see the file and demand the right to uh, delete things from the file. And this is an area where we need to be alert to what's happening. We need to be participating in these processes. We should be looking at the current drafting of privacy laws and make sure that they create a protection for compliance program activities. So if a company wants to do due diligence to make sure it's acting consistent with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or it needs to investigate an employee or a manager or an officer's misconduct, the privacy laws should recognize that that's legitimate. And we have to do that. We can't depend on others to make that point for us. Now, one other area of concern that I know you have is uh, the growing number of academics who claim expertise in compliance without necessarily having it. How do we ensure that our ver our voices are heard there, just like you're advocating we need to with the laws that are being made? Well, it's a good question, Adam, and I'll start with the point that there are people in academia who are really good. For example, Danny Sokol, who's at the University of Southern California, has actually talked with compliance people and he's done actual empirical work, which is what you need. But there are a number of academics where you get the sense that they really resent anything that resists or gets in the way or is an alternative to litigation. And so you see writers who just conclude right from the start that all compliance programs are shams, 
There's one writer who goes so far as to say programs will be used to hide and commit violations. You have another who considers compliance to be cosmetic. And then these writers are cited repeatedly as if they had established some deep truth that others didn't know. One of the things you see in these writers is they talk about corporate compliance. And some of them, animosity toward competition and free markets is right on the surface. What they never do, and I mean never, ever, is examine misconduct in universities, in their own backyards. Another thing that they do is they simply don't read and study the sentencing guidelines. As basic as you would think that is, they do not do it. Instead, they either assume that compliance is just training and having codes of conduct, or some of them view it as command and control, as if the only thing we do is stand over people with whips, whipping them into shape. They ignore things like the role of incentives in compliance programs. They ignore the role of compliance officers. And again, our role is we can't hide under a basket. We can't ignore these things because it's amazing how these bad ideas can gain currency if they're not rebutted and if no one is standing up for our field and we can't be passive. It's funny, Adam, because we're very active in-house in doing this work, but very passive in dealing with the outside and the bad ideas that come from these academics can find their way into legislation and regulation. So we need to be active. As the saying goes, hope is not a plan. No, it's not. And I, I got to say, the one time I came up with this, I'm glad I spoke up. I was at a conference in China and an uh, academic out of Hong Kong uh, was talking about seemingly stuff made sense about understanding the risks and aligning your compliance strategy accordingly. And he then went on to say that if you're in a country where corruption is endemic and there's low risk of there being being caught or there being reper repercussions, that maybe your compliance plan is to just not put any of the bribes in writing. Um, and I just couldn't let that go and had to challenge him. Well, if there was low probability of uh, getting prosecuted for murder, would that be okay? Um, you know, which he didn't have a good answer to. Uh, and, and by the way, a assistant U.S. attorney was in the audience and literally was left slack-jawed by the academic's comment. So yeah, you know, it, it, it's got to be challenged. And at the same time, as you say, recognize those who are doing good work. Now, finally, Joe, what should we all be doing today to help ensure a healthy compliance profession for the next generation? Well, I may sound repetitive in focusing on the need to speak up for our field, um, but we really need to do that. I did lay out a plan in an article that, uh, you know, I wrote several years ago for the Rutgers University Law Review where I talked about the types of things we need to do, the type of leadership we need to display. It's important that we don't let others define what our field is. We should not let others be telling us what we should be doing. And therefore, I think we need to be vocal. We need to speak about our field. We need to participate and make these points when there are other groups telling us what to do. For example, the International Standards Organization has been issuing standards on compliance. 
we need to make sure that the practitioners are involved, that the standards they come up with are not simply designed for consultants, but that they reflect the actuality of our practice. And the same is true with dealing with the government. The same is true with dealing with academics. We need to make sure our voice is heard so that future compliance and ethics people will have a better defined field and a field where they're better able to achieve their very important objectives in doing compliance and ethics work. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because the more we gain a high profile, the more others are going to be looking at us and trying to get their peace and say things. So it's definitely, you know, one of those things where we're going to have to keep fighting for ourselves in a different way rather than establishing the profession, but keeping it what it should be. Well, Joe, thanks for your insights today and over the last several decades. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletow from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.